what conditions are stipulations magic tricks or manipulations interjecting conversation We're going to say right off the bat, we're not going to talk about RBG because that deserves its whole episode. And yes, we are depleted and broken. And um, yeah, uh, we got the news today and yep. we're processing oh, it. Oh boy. And uh, we'll talk about it yeah. later. We, yeah, it does not escape our attention. Well, this is um, exceedingly persuasive. And that comes from the opinion written by... Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Justice Ginsburg. So, Absolutely. shout out to that. Uh, I'm Brooke Rogers. And I'm Mackenzie Brendan, and we're both broken. Just, just a wreck. You thought you were broken before. Hot damn. Buckle in. This year will not let up. So if you want another reason to cry, we decided to pivot to a much lighter uh, topic. This episode, we're going to discuss public health policy, both effective and ineffective, when a new pandemic starts spreading. So we're obviously all familiar with the COVID context, so that seems like a dead horse to beat. Um, so we wanted to uh, maybe throw it back a little to uh, some historic yeah. relevance. Let's give it some context. In terms of public health policy, you know, timely action, once you find out that this is a thing, the law's approach to personal freedom versus the greater good, Government leaders' messaging and incorporating actual medical science. How their rhetoric impacts society at large. Uh-huh. Responses to something like this, a huge epidemic, pandemic. And and just overall humanity of, of governmental and societal approaches. It is a life or death thing, how yeah. governments respond to pandemics. And so we wanted to frame this with the last large-scale national global epidemiological crisis, which was the outbreak of the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. Uh, The decade, unfortunately, fluctuates a little bit in terms of the Reagan administration's acknowledgement of it, but um, we'll get there. Another example of the government ignoring a crisis early on, trying to kind of waffle in their response to it, Mm -hmm. and how that affected American citizens. Yeah, consequent deaths from it, certainly. I mean, Right now, it's it's a cautionary tale with a lot of similarities in many ways. So we have, like, a TV movie star president, first of all, um, in action from the executive branch, meowing, which is tragic in many cases, propaganda, and, and just, like, yeah, I know, girl, it's really rough. She just wants to, she wants to be our third podcast host. Act up. Fight AIDS. Silence equals death. Just, like bigoted moralizing over policy and medicine and and people dying because of that. So there are obviously a lot of through lines between the early years of HIV AIDS and COVID now. And then there are a lot of like coincidentally timely pieces of the conversation. So Mike Pence is now the head of the COVID task force, although he was, when he was governor of Indiana, responsible for the largest HIV AIDS outbreak since the 90s because of his inaction. So, A-plus, past epidemic experience. Um, Anthony Fauci, we're going to get into it a little bit because we totally forgot that this was relevant, but our interviewee remembered. So, he was involved in both epidemics. Also, the playwright Larry Kramer, who, if you haven't seen The Normal Heart, it's on HBO. It's incredible. You can rent it on Prime. He Extremely insightful and educational and 
hot. Completely heart wrenching. Honestly, if you want to watch, my HR was heart wrenching. I'm sorry. I'm the Prince of Darkness. I've been desensitized to all death in a nice way. So Larry Kramer died within the last two months or so. Also, the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, had its 30th anniversary, which uh, postdates the AIDS crisis, but ended up being um, a good tool for protection for people with HIV and AIDS going forward. Just had its 30th anniversary uh, about a month ago. So there are a lot of timely factors. Obviously, there are also big differences between the two epidemics. Largely, there are practical differences about the diseases themselves and and treatment and science, which kind of highlights the fact that the laws stay the same, but we have to inform the laws with science and medicine and keep ourselves informed because HIV AIDS is transmitted very differently. The risk factors are different. The severity, the nature of transmission, uh, prevention who's at risk. A lot of those things differ, but that's all about science. So we have to keep ourselves informed and rooted in science. Absolutely. Yes. I and think you had transmission rates on hand. Would you mind sharing those? Yes. And and this is current, so it's good to keep abreast also of how um, science progresses and, and make sure that policy keeps up with that. Would have been different in the 80s, most likely. Certainly with with less information and a, a greater pool of people who um, are testing positive. So now... One in seven people with HIV in the U.S. are unaware of being infected, so get tested. Uh, If you go to a free testing site, it is free, as the name would suggest. Heterosexual, penal, vaginal, penetrative sex, the receptive, the vaginal partner, that is 0.08%, so less than 1% per exposure without protection. The insertive partner, so the penal partner, is 0.04%, so even less than 1%. Um, Anal intercourse the receptive partner, so the one who's receiving the penetration, this is the highest occurrence rate. It is a little less than 2%, so still pretty low for unprotected sex to contract HIV. And also to distinguish that HIV is different than AIDS, we'll get into the likelihood of one turning into the other these days in a second. But then um, penetrative anal sex is about 0.1% risk of uh, infection. 66% of people who are HIV positive now are men who have sex with men. 24% are heterosexual couples. Uh, 7% are people who inject drugs. And 4% are men who have sex with men and also inject drugs. So just that you keep that in mind. There are also uh, negligible percentages of perinatally acquired. So people whose parents were positive when they were pregnant. Um, Can also be passed through breast milk, which is why some babies get it. But important, and this is a good segue, to mention prophylactic or preventative transmission treatments. PrEP or PEP? Yeah, so PEP is post-exposure. So after you've been exposed to HIV in the first 72 hours, you can take PEP, and the side effects can be a little rough because it's it's fucking with your immune system. Uh, That is pretty effective. PrEP is pre-exposure prophylactic treatment um, that you can take consistently if you know that you might be exposed or your partner is somebody who's positive. And another big preventative measure is treatment as prevention. So if you're HIV positive and you get treated early and consistently, first of all, worth noting that your life expectancy is now, with the current treatments, the same as somebody who is not HIV positive. And with early consistent treatment, it likely will not turn to AIDS. So when we're talking about, and, and we will talk about 
AIDS and, and the side effects thereof and, and the terror that came with that. And how scary it was in the 80s specifically when yeah. there was no information and no research about it. Medical science luckily now with funding and, and time has progressed to the, the point that this isn't a death sentence. But it's also useful if you are HIV positive for your partner because you having an undetectable viral load, which means that you're you're treated well enough that it doesn't show up in your system when you're tested, that also means that your partner will not get it. And that is a huge reduction of stigma and of, of difficulty in daily life. So, so the big takeaway is obviously if you have uh, get tested yes. uh, pretty consistently uh, and talk to your doctor about preventative measures and treatments because it's no longer a death sentence. It's not as scary as it was in the 80s, but it absolutely is something that you should be aware of and that your partner yeah. should be aware of. And I think that uh, consistent SGE testing and just awareness of your own body and, and your health factors, um, obviously. And your partners and, and all that absolutely. good stuff. That there are there are free clinics that offer these as well. Yeah. So I know that not everyone has access to healthcare because of the system we live in, but mm. there are lots of free clinics that offer SGE testing and ways to access these preventative measures and treatments. Yeah, the only way it's scary these days is if you keep your head in the sand. So it's it's a good lesson. Being aware is your best defense at this point. Absolutely. One thing I wanted to say, Kenzie referenced earlier the uh, differences in the, the pandemic that we are facing today versus the epidemic that we were facing in the 80s. One big thing I wanted to talk about is um, even though the two administrations, the Reagan administration in the 80s and the Trump administration now, even though both of their um, responses or lack of responses have been political, in the 80s, uh, there was an extra element, which was obviously homophobia. Right. And um, that makes it a little different in that the reason why um, the widespread deaths of these young men were ignored for so long and why so little funding and research was put into it and why people refused to acknowledge it for so long was bigotry. And I think that's really important to acknowledge before we start this conversation. Yeah, and I think that you see how a lot of these things, even though COVID affects everybody, um, in Arizona, for example, you saw that on the reservation, because they were Absolutely. a marginalized group with less funding and, and less attention and just less caring going towards them, that was where you saw the first outbreaks. Allocation so, of resources mm -hmm. is political. Um, at its core, and it does and it always comes who is cared for. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, as we will discuss later in the episode, it, as Mackenzie just said, it has come home to roost. It comes back to bite us if we ignore problems out of um, ignorance and bigotry, whether it's toward a marginalized uh, group of people such as uh, indigenous people or toward gay people, anyone in the LGBT community, it is going to, it is going to blow yeah. up. Even That's if you lack humanity, it, it'll get you. We're all connected. We should treat ourselves as a greater community. And the reason why we take care of the most vulnerable is because we are stronger when we take care of the most vulnerable. That's one of the many So you judge a society, right? How it treats its old people and children. That's right. Ay, ay, ay. Well, even though HIV is no longer a death sentence, and it's certainly not guaranteed to turn into AIDS, and we know a lot more about transmission and, and how to prevent it, that was not the case in the early 1980s. So my family, my the Joy family, was the quintessential big conservative Catholic family. They lived in New York. They actively campaigned for Ronald Reagan, among others. Um, my mom was the youngest of seven kids. Her youngest older brother was two years older than her, and that was Stuart. The family was 
thrust into the center of the HIV AIDS crisis. It literally brought the issue home. Yes, it did. So, uh... Stuart Alexander Joy was a visual artist and creative who was born in Brooklyn in 1958. He was driven and vivacious. He graduated Duke University and designed for Liz Claiborne. He palled around with Debbie Harry at Studio 54 in New York City. There was one story of Mackenzie's mom and aunt driving into the city when they saw a man attracting a crowd in Washington Square Park, and it wasn't until they got closer that they realized that it was their brother, Stuart. (laughs) He was uh, the life of the party. He was um, always attracting people to him. Uh, In 1986, a year before Ronald Reagan even spoke the word AIDS publicly, Stuart was diagnosed with a virus that would kill him two years later at the age of 30. Toward the end, Stuart told his family that he was sad he wouldn't get to see how it all turned out. He was one of the many lives lost to AIDS in the early years of the AIDS crisis, and the government and society at large refused to acknowledge the reality of the widespread epidemic. So uh, we got a chance to meet for the first time via Zoom and discuss this with somebody who lived it. So uh, without further ado, here is our interview with John Asher. Look, I, I think because I was in the arts, I kind of believe in like, letting it just play and roll and play out. No limitations as far as creativity. I think if you start off with limitations initially, the rose doesn't get to bloom fully. I like that. Okay. I'm going to let you introduce who you are to me and who Stuart is because I feel like that's more interesting than me doing it. So Sure. Okay. Hi, Mackenzie and hi, Brooke. It's a pleasure to have this conversation with you guys. So um, we're seeing each other through Skype, which is sort of nice. Um, because I've never really officially met you, Mackenzie, although I'm in a bizarre, distant way related, that's an air quotes, to you. I know your mom and your mom's family, the Joy family, from back in the early 1980s when I met your uncle, Stuart. Um, We were both working at a department store in the name of Abraham and Strauss. It was named... Okay. It was I called think it's Abraham and Strauss, <laughs> and it's no longer in existence, but um, it was a great store at that point in time, and um, I was still in college, um, and your uncle had just graduated from Duke University, and he was in the retail management training program, so um, I would see him throughout the store walking around or you know walking past the department and i say oh that he's cute guy and eventually we just started having conversation and we both decided yeah let's go out and have a drink or just go out for a social outing which we did and one thing led to another and suddenly i had a boyfriend and i was involved (laughs) with Stuart alexander joy So that goes back to like 1981 when it had all kind of started. Okay. Um, Then by 1983, we decided to move in together. And he was living at home with his parents, your family. Um, (laughs) And I was still living at home. I'm a few years younger than Stuart. so we, in 1983, we got our first apartment on the corner, uh, it was on 435 East 76th Street, small one bedroom, 
but charming. And I remember, you know, acquiring certain things before we moved in together. We found some, you know, chairs and thrift shops and we decided to reupholster them. And yeah, he anyways, did it, a lot of that reupholstering and whatnot, right? Because I know he yes. did my mom's furniture in their yes. room and surprised them when they came home from college. Yep, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that is true. Um, and then after the, the lease was up in 1984, we moved into a larger apartment, um, at, which was 345 East 80th Street, apartment okay. 4K. <laughs> and um, it was a rent-stabilized apartment, really big apartment. Oh my gosh. Super low rent. And... Um, it's a gold so, mine in New York. Yeah, God. yeah, which is really hard to find in New York. I don't know if those deals exist anymore, but mm -hmm. we had one. We had a really great uh, suite apartment. And again, we fixed that place up and, um, you know, we're living as a gay couple in New York. So the scene in the 1980s, just to bring you back because you <laughs> guys weren't born yet. No. <laughs> um, so New York was... Look, there have always been and there will always be gay people. Mm. So um, that's the beginning <laughs> of time and will be till the end of time. But, you know, it's always been kind of a taboo subject and it's been kind of hush-hush. And that's where the term in the closet comes from because you couldn't live an open, free life. Mm. And society wasn't willing to embrace that. And even families, you know, it was a scandal. So even though um, some families might have suspected or deep down inside known, it maybe just wasn't spoken about because people mm. just didn't come out. Well, um, I meant to ask, when you and Stuart moved in together, how did you couch that to your respective families? Because I know my family was very conservative. They were Catholic. My grandfather was the head of the conservative party on Long Island at one point. Um, so obviously good people. I, I love them. But I think until, certainly until the end of Stuart's life, they didn't fully acknowledge it, as far as I know. So yes. I'd be interested to know what your experience was. And I... I understand that you came from a conservative family yourself? I came from a conservative family as well. Um, a Republican family, conservative points of view, also Catholic. In fact, yes. the joke was, in fact, the joke was your grandmother would always say, you know, why aren't any of these girls, anyone bring home a nice Catholic boy? So you did. <laughs> or Stuart so, did. Like Stuart he was the did, only one. The thing, yeah. There you go. There was a nice Catholic boy brought into the family. You're welcome. He Joy was a family. Nice, he was a nice Catholic gay boy. There's <laughs> <So, laughs> a little curveball in there. Um, you no, know, Lindsay married um, a Jewish guy, and your dad, I believe, was. He was a liberal atheist, so. A liberal atheist. So, I mean, everyone was kind of Yikes. all over the board. Yeah. But, um, so, someone brought home a Catholic boy, unfortunately. Um, Stuart did well, yes. Stuart. So, uh, yes, everyone was kind of conservative. And so, when we decided to move in, um, we always spoke in terms of roommates. Yes. Stuart was my roommate. I thought that for a long time. I think my aunt believed what Stuart had told her, which is that it was a one-bedroom, but that you rotated who slept on the couch. <laughs> Most yeah. of my... Come on. <laughs> really? <laughs> but uh, I guess you believe what you want to believe. Absolutely. This is true. And so, um, you know, it's funny that you say that. People say, if you don't acknowledge the truth, it isn't true. 
but yeah, right. Um, so that will bring us to a conversation down the road with ah. our current administration. Uh-huh. But anyway, um, so we did move in together, and um, back in the ni- early 1980s, there was uh, a play, what was called deemed the gay plague, mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. sort of you would hear about and read about and hear about this up-and-coming disease. And initially, it was a disease that had only affected homosexuals, hemophiliacs, supposedly horses, and Haitians. I, you know, so that's early. It's that's so really specific. It's very strange. It is very specific and very strange. But what, I don't know how Haitians and horses got thrown in there. But, you know, now yeah. it makes sense about hemophiliacs and mm-hmm. homosexuals in the sense that something that could have been transmitted through blood. Sure. But, you know, it was, a, it was a disease that was affecting a certain part of society and a certain people that, you know, not too many people paid attention to. Um, going back to like, oh, you know, we don't have gay people in our family or right. no one's gay here or, oh, you know, they're, they're mentally sick anyway, so they right. shouldn't, you know, um, because, again, homosexuality was thought of as an illness at that point in time and earlier. It was almost against the law, I think, at one point. It was certainly in the cases that uh, struck down those laws are late 90s in a Supreme Court setting. So New York usually is the most progressive. If it wasn't happening here, those protections, it wasn't happening anywhere. So there was a Texas law I know that was addressed in a case that uh, it outlawed sodomy and it was only enforced, of course, against gay men. But that was struck down, I think, in the 90s. So it was against the law in some places. Wow. Yeah. So, again, it was because it was affecting only a certain segment, what was deemed as maybe an undesirable or an unimportant group of people that, you know, people didn't pay too much attention to. But the CDC was aware of this Mm -hmm. and what was transpiring and going on. They're smart, educated people. As they still are. (laughs) Uh, yes, and they, you know, they're they're aware of what's going on and what's out there. Mm-hmm. So I, it was brought up to the Reagan administration because that's kind of when it's sort of going into full effect, really starting to spread and become rampant. And it was, you know, something that was in, you know, metro areas like Manhattan, New York, mm-hmm. and San Francisco, and you know, larger cities that had large groups of, of the gay population. Um, but I don't know whether I should go into my own personal part of this now. Maybe Brooke, because Brooke actually did some research on the early days. And I think that actually might segue well into the years that certain things happened with Stuart. The- yeah. So I believe what you were talking about with the Reagan administration being approached with the issue there was a press conference in 82 uh, where a reporter was talking to Larry Speaks, who was the uh, press secretary at the time. Yes. He brought it up and it was laughed at. Do you know? 
it was brought up again in 8485. And of course, by that time, there had been thousands of deaths, yeah, I think yeah. like 5,000, over 5,000 deaths. And when it was brought up again, it was, they were making jokes about it and getting really yes. defensive. thousands of people, yeah. um, you know, m many more cases, but thousands of people had already died. And uh, it was being, it was a joke in the, it, within the press pool. Even caring about house. it was a joke. It, and it, it was also, if you think about how many folks knew, and this can kind of transition us to your experience with it, that um, I was speaking to my mom last night about it to just get a little bit of familial context. And she was working as a young nurse at the time. She's your age. And she self-described and recovering, very strong conservative Catholic at the time too. And she said, you know, the difference is that I never felt hate for my brother, but there was a, a, a grain in my mind of why can't you just be different? Just stop and it'll go away. And they were starting to notice things around 85. And my grandmother and grandfather had told my mom, who was working out in Arizona in healthcare, to avoid that population more out of fear because they didn't want her to get sick. And I, I can't imagine that there wasn't a political undertone to it, but um, there certainly was a, a nationwide awareness that she's working in healthcare in Arizona, the New York family's telling her to be careful. Yeah. And it it's certainly like known. <laughs> like when the, when the rhetoric from the top, when the yes. messaging from the top, which was the White House, is mm -hmm. that uh, this is not something to be concerned about. And if anything, there was an element of, of disdain and uh, mm -hmm. there's the, you know, homophobic jokes and, and otherism being made. That otherism. It's, it's and, them, yeah. it's not, and yeah. if you care about this, if you're bringing it up, then uh, you're going then to you're be the shamed. Yeah. And, and so I, I wanted to ask you about, you know, around that time, how, what was the, in your experience, uh, the community's feelings around that kind of rhetoric coming from the Oval Office? Sure. The, uh, you're absolutely correct in terms of the press conference. And when it was brought to um, the attention, when it was brought up in a press conference and asked about was it whether uh, President Reagan was aware or if he had or was, you know, in tune with what was going on, um, this disease that was affecting a certain population in the United States, he was sort of laughed at and snickered and hmm. put back on the, the reporter who had asked the question, you know, it was kind of like it was taboo yeah. and like you were bad, dirty, or it might implicate that you might be gay. Um, <laughs> and yeah, uh, that they laughed at it, snickered at it, and moved on to the next subject. Mm. So, uh, and it was again brought up ag again, um, I'm sure many times, but it was uh, again because it was affecting a certain audience that just somehow didn't matter or register and it wasn't mm. deemed as, and that's inexcusable but kind of indicative of the times, you know, uh, in terms of affecting a group that somehow didn't matter. And no one was out or stating that they were out. So it was kind of all hush-hush. And if you wound up having it, it was almost like this negative stigma and you were 
you know, an out, almost like an outcast of society at that point in time. Um, unlike today's administration where COVID is affecting any and everyone, yeah. um, which is, you know, and still being downplayed, ignored, and deemed as nothing that's life-threatening where it is. And in actuality, when you think back into the 1980s and the beginning of AIDS, because it, what, it did start within the gay community, but eventually spread, it could be spread to any and everyone. It the wasn't just- The is remarkable. Like how do you- <laughs> Yeah. Um, so if you really think about it, it's like how one person affects another person or it passes to one person that goes on to two people to four to eight Mm -hmm. and it just keeps multiplying and and becoming larger and larger just like covid does you know Mm -hmm. and large groups of people i mean obviously the way it's transmitted is very different Mm -hmm. but um so uh i'll get back to my portion did i did i answer the question brooke as far as oh yeah uh, yeah did your did the community register at all that they were kind of being left behind and all this and ignored yes i mean when of course anything that would affect your own community you take an a greater interest in and so there was a discussion amongst the gay community like there's this disease that's going out there mm-hmm. and you know it's killing people and it cripples your immune system and it's passed on sexually and yeah. You know, if you think about society in general, when you say someone was in the closet, because society didn't embrace gays, there was really no place for a gay man to go out and meet another gay man. Right. So you would either meet them in a gay bar right. or, you know, walking on the street deemed as cruising, right. you know, where you would pass each other and look, you know, yeah. check each other out. And because people were so closeted, there was really nowhere to go. You couldn't go to a bar and speak intimately. I mean, of course you could, but, you know, it's not like going out on a a date would be the same as for an accepted heterosexual couple. And so there were all kinds of crazy sex clubs Mm -hmm. and back rooms and bars where you could go and be intimate with someone because, you know, you if you were living at home, you couldn't bring them home to your mother and father. Oh, yeah. hi, this is my boyfriend. Because yeah. it was a time when it just wasn't socially accepted. It's funny. So, I never put together that that kind of arose yeah. out of necessity. Right. That it was, you didn't yeah. even have safe spaces. So you had to create your own safe spaces yeah. to meet that each other. Yeah. By themselves kind of became concentrated. And for this kind of thing, that could be the worst thing. But yeah. how do you have, how do you know that's going to happen? You're born of necessity. Right, yeah. right. I, I didn't a- absolutely. And so it, you know, it's almost like all aspects of society weren't acknowledging it. So the administration wasn't going to acknowledge okay. it. And yeah. it's kind of worked hand in hand. Yeah. And it's wrong, obviously, and was not effective because it kind of exploded. Yeah. Um, compared to today's pandemic when, mm. you know, it affects everyone. You can just yeah. be walking in a grocery store and right. someone might sneeze and next thing you know, poof, you've got the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are parallels, but there are obvious differences. I think it's also it's just a good example of how dangerous shame and stigma and an and anti-science view of something right. can be that's the through line. because it, it really marginalizes people who are suffering when you, if you can't um, 
you know, again, like you said, there wasn't a lot of concern in this society at large. And so the administration reflected that, but that caused it to blow up because there was a stigma around it. Mm -hmm. It's just, and I think Reagan really paved the way for this administration to be allowed to do that weird, moralistic politicizing of, I mean, anti-science. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And that's why the message from the top is an important one. Yes. Because even smart, educated people hear what they want to hear or hear certain things that come from the most important person in the world. I'll deem him as that. Um, I certainly don't think Donald Trump is the most important person in the world. Unfortunately, he has that. He's sitting in that chair right now. He's sitting in that chair, and I don't think he's really up for the job. Um, yeah. he's I'd say the same of Reagan four... at the time. Another yes. Hollywood person yes. who kind of... Former over policy guy. It was a propaganda campaign yeah. more than anything else. So yes, and <laughs> it's dangerous. Just to, to move it back to your personal experience with it, um, I guess we can talk about uh, when Stuart was diagnosed. Sure, and if we're talking about the 84 press conference, I that's think that's an off point. Yeah, that's certainly when... My aunt Allie was married in 85, and my family said that Stuart was different to their eyes. Yes, so, so your uncle was fashion designer, handbags and belts. Mm-hmm. I was a shoe designer. Um, so in 1984, when we had moved into um, our second apartment, Stuart was working with Liz Claiborne. Mm, actually wearing the, that now. <laughs> oh, for crying out loud. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was working for Liz Claiborne and traveling the world and in a, a, a job that he loved. But, you know, in 1984, he started saying how he was tired a lot of the time, exhausted. And, you know, we thought nothing of it because we never thought that that was at our threshold. Right. Um, and we deemed it as, well, he travels the world. He's got jet sure. lag, always working really late hours. Um, Stuart had a bit of a wild side in him though. So when he would go out, he would really go out and have a great time and sometimes not come home. And so I, you know, there were a few nights where I was like, oh, I'm working a little bit later. I was like, okay, don't worry. I have dinner ready, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And so I would wait till like eight, nine, 10, 11, and then call the office and say like, you know, and wonder if he was coming home and there were no cell phones didn't exist back then so you couldn't check in and so his phone would ring 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 and his his office phone and I never answered and so I was like you know I guess he went out or whatever and you know then next morning would come and um might show up but Hmm. you know there were times where he didn't come home for a couple of days so uh and was so that, that stressful kind of, for you? I mean, extremely stressful yeah. and disappointing because yeah. you know um, the most. There was one New Year's Eve where I prepared a really big dinner, wow. and again, just never came home. And then yeah. I got a phone call on New Year's Day. I think it was like four thirty or five o'clock in the morning, mm. and you know he was really out of it. He didn't know where he was, and. Um, called me from a payphone because that's how you communicated with people. Right. And um, I said, just stay there. And I jumped in the car and went down and picked him up and got him home. So we, you know, you know, just never putting 
sometimes when there's where there's smoke, there's fire, but you yeah. never put the pieces. I never put the pieces of the puzzle together. Sure. So we're being a little bit wild and being out and not coming home certain times. And then when he was working, how when he was home, how he was not feeling well and tired. Um, and this went on for a few years until 1986 when um, he started getting fevers mm. and very, very bad night sweats and um, something just clearly wasn't right. Right. So I remember his, his temperature was so sky high. Mm. He took, I got him in a cold bath, tried to get his body temperature down, and we went to the emergency room. And um, I, that's when I guess he spoke. I mean, I wasn't allowed in because it wasn't Dean's mm. family. So he was in with the doctor, and I guess they, um, you know, did some tests and, you know, through conversation, not that you would get immediate results, but they were indicating that that was indeed the case. And, um, and then I remember him coming home saying that he was HIV positive. And I was really just, you know, I felt like the rug was pulled out from underneath my really? feet. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, it's sort of like um, when you, when someone is, so ill and they're around, they keep holding on, holding on. Uh -huh. um, and then eventually when you, and you know that eventually something's going to happen, come, but even when right. it happens, it, mm. it's still kind of devastating. Of course. Um, so it, you so weren't surprised though, per se, but it was, it was assaulting kind of. Yes. Yeah. It was really, um, and of course, very concerned for Stuart, but then I was also, very concerned for myself because yeah, I was, you know, kind of a victim of circumstance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so that was brought into our household. And yeah. as I said earlier, um, if you were deemed as HIV positive, you at that point in time, there were no cures. There were no real drugs. It was so, still so new that um, it was like, okay, you got this. And usually you start the clock and, Two years yeah. or less is what your life sentence becomes. Yeah. Even at that point, so if 86, um, the administration had been aware, I believe, since yeah. 83, and yes. so At little least, money yeah. or resources were allocated toward treatment or research. So, of course, there w wasn't, you know, a cure or treatment because nothing had been done about it yeah. for three uh, years. That is very true, Brooke, yes. And so... Um, was a very scary position to be in. And I was 24, 25, 26 cool. years old, you know, starting working and, you know, not really having a, a lot of money between us and, you know, just being young when we should be thinking about like what vacations we're going to be going on and what parties we're going to be going to and where we're we going out on Friday night or for the weekend and what friends we're going to see. It automatically shifted like, Oh my God! What what are we gonna do? Uh, I'm so sorry. Um, what not. month did he get diagnosed? I'm just trying to think about when. I think it was. Suspicions arose in a more. I don't know whether it was like August or September of 1986. I, I think. So I only ask because I know that my mom had told us about a conversation that she had with him 
out in Arizona and it was before a formal diagnosis and he said, I think I have this rash in my mouth and it, it was oral thrush and it was so obviously oral thrush to her, which uh, for anybody who doesn't know is a fungal infection that was a real marker at the time of um, HIV specifically because it, it preys on a weak immune system. And that you don't correct. really see young people getting that. That is so correct. Yes. My mom said that looking at, cause she was a nurse, she, she was looking in his mouth and she knew in that moment that he was probably going to die. And she told him, I love you. You can tell me whatever you want. Go talk to dad. Because your grandpa was a physician. Right. Right. And yes. he was conservative, obviously, but she thought, I don't think dad will turn him away, but he'll know what to do. But Stuart didn't tell her anything specific. I don't think he came out expressly at the time. But did certainly... Not. He did not. Again, the fear. Yeah, of course. And the stigma. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and at, also at that point in time, as people were being diagnosed with this, you would read about how or hear about how um, families were rejecting yes. their own yeah. sons. Yeah. And so then not only were they ill they had no no family support nowhere to go and it was <clears throat> uh, a really difficult judgment or you know that was really like oh my god like talk about your world your life and your world and everything crumbling and when so, you need it most you need family ab ab or money or support or something <laughs> absolutely and um and there was no cure so it wasn't like okay well if i go to the doctor and i take mm. this I'll get better, uh, or if I have this procedure, they'll remove it and you know, mm -hmm. I've got a chance. It was like, there was no chance, really. Mm -hmm. um, so Stuart uh, eventually did speak to his parents. Mm -hmm. um, you know, after he had shared with me, I, you know, I was like, and I know he was fearful to talk to his dad about it, your grandfather, mm -hmm. um, and, but he did. And um, he was sick at that point in time. And I think he had to go to uh, the hospital where your grandfather was working, which was Nassau County Medical Center, I believe. Okay. And uh, he was admitted and they did some tests. And I remember speaking to your grandfather, hmm. Dr. Joy. And, um, you know, I know that Stu was experiencing something that was, because it attacked all aspects of your immune system. And so right. um, he was having pain where anything, like even um, to have lay a sheet on top of him mm. was excruciatingly painful. So I remember your grandfather saying he couldn't even put a sheet on him, even though he was shivering and then sweating from fever and chills. Yeah. But they somehow got him the symptoms under control for the time being, but that was just a temporary fix. Yeah. And as the disease progressed, your immune system continues to break down and you become more susceptible. There was um, something called um, PCP pneumocystic pneumonia, mm -hmm. which it floats in the air. Like you and I are, we're all breathing it at the here and now, but it, when you have a healthy immune system, it's, you just, you're you not susceptible it to yeah. it. So, um, you know, that was always very dangerous for anyone who is HIV positive. And there was also something, physical markings that would appear in your body called Kaposi's sarcoma. And 
you would get large red blotches. So on top of physically deteriorating, like you just lost all kind of muscle tone and you, you would lose weight. And so, it, you know, many times AIDS victims look like, you know, skeleton with skin just draped on them. Mm. You would also have these bright purple, red markings on you. And so you truly became like outcast in society. Like yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, like Hester Prynne in the yeah. Scarlet Letter. Stuart never had any of the marks, the Kaposi's sarcoma, but he did have pneumocystic pneumonia twice. And um, again, through meds and antibiotics, somehow came out of both of those, but was, you know, even though he would survive that episode, was still deteriorating in other ways. And I remember being at your grandparents' house with Stuart one time, and we were watching some television. I had just come over to visit, and he, we were talking, and all of a sudden he had a seizure, mm. a very bad seizure. And I remember him just falling and oh. seeing his body flailing on the ground. Um, and I was, I ran down the steps and got your grandfather and grandmother. Very scary, very frightening. Um, what did they do? Your grandfather got it under control. Mm. And then we knew that he had to go to the hospital or be mm. further checked. And I remember him because he was sitting on the edge of the bed. And then when he started having the convulsion, fell over and like scraped his head and was bleeding a little bit. And that is very, you know, you couldn't be around blood because, right. you know, you could be. Oh, gosh, yeah. Could, and, you know, it was just all around scary. And again, we're like young guys in our 20s, yeah. Yeah. you know, our 20s. And you shouldn't be dealing with this kind of thing. Right. But somehow we were living it. It became our life, yeah. you know. Yeah. How did the family handle it? Did they allow you to come over freely? Um, I know obviously they, so both of my grandparents retired to take care of Stuart, but they also, uh, my grandmother's still conservative to this day. Uh, I think my grandfather was until he died. So it was kind of a cognitive dissonance that I know went further than a lot of parents did. Uh, it's just interesting, both of you being good Catholic boys, um, how was that? Well, it's interesting, you know, again, going back to Catholics, where <laughs> the Catholic Church at that point in time also had deemed homosexuals as intrinsic moral evils. Mm, and wow. Nicely put. <laughs> so it's like, okay, um, yeah. So you can't even find comfort if you yeah. are a person of faith and you were raised, you know, in the church, which I, I was, I had a religious background as well. And I know that for some people, even if you um, aren't a part of the church anymore, a practicing member, it's still something that you could potentially find comfort in. And now you're even being rejected yes. and yep. uh, demonized by this place that you could have otherwise potentially found comfort. It's what yes. turned my mom away from the church. She, yes. after he died, yeah. Just yeah, absolutely. Um, and so um, I wasn't present for the conversations that Stuart had with mm -hmm. his parents. Um, but 
your grandparents rose to the occasion. I don't know what they said hmm. um, when they were in bed together, speaking about the situation, but they did rise to the occasion. And your grandfather expressed great concern for my health and oh, well-being. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, and that was very kind. And he had said, obviously, I have to go start being tested on a regular basis yeah. um, because you just don't know. Yeah. And he checked me out several times as far as um, one indication was the, the thrush, which mm -hmm. I never had. Um, swollen lymph nodes in either your neck or under your arms or in your mm -hmm. groinal area, extreme swollen mm -hmm. lymph nodes. Um, and your grandfather would check me out uh, okay. on a, on a semi-regular basis. <laughs> and I started going to my own doctor who was a gay doctor. Oh, that's great. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, living in New York, Mm -hmm. You know, I would ask friends, like, I didn't have a physician, I had a family physician, but it wasn't certainly a conversation I was comfortable having with yeah. the same physician that my parents and brothers of and course. sisters would go to. So I had my own physician in New York, and I was tested on a regular basis, on a yearly basis, for, okay. you know, supposedly the virus can live in, was able to live inside of you for up to 20 years without showing wow. symptoms. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So from you know, my mid twenties until almost my fifties. Yeah, I like relatively always, recent. Yeah. I mean, like ten, about wow. 10 years ago would always be fearful. And, you know, as time went on, the doctors say, no, you know, that's because it's, you know, You're more doing okay for this about, long. You know? Yes. Yeah. And I've been okay for that long, but, um, you know, but even so every time I would go for a blood test, just always living in fear was yeah. Yeah. a bit of torment. Yeah. Um, but getting back to Stuart, he, um, Stuart had become debilitated yeah. beyond being able to come back to the apartment because I just couldn't, yeah. you know, it would, I couldn't handle it anymore. Of course. Fair um, enough. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, you know, again, in my twenties, I just didn't know if or when something might happen. And, you know, you come from a family of doctors and nurses, right. everyone in your okay. family. They were uniquely equipped to, to yes. deal with that. And God so, bless, when you're talking about my grandfather checking you out, it's good that he did, but this is a man who also at, at dinner parties, my aunt would bring a boyfriend home, you know, trying to make a good impression. And my, my grandfather would be like, so Allie, how are your bowels? <laughs> okay, yeah. good. So it, he's it, very, very a very open man. <laughs> when we Maybe. had... Little yeah, it was dinner conversation because everyone uh -huh. was a medical professional. So speaking about bodily fluids or yeah. bodily functions or a disease. Um, I'll tell you that persists was, to this day for better or worse. <laughs> was actually, you know, I guess commonplace uh -huh. where yeah. it's something that in my house we didn't ever speak of that even. <laughs> but yes, your grandfather really showed uh, his professional his kind and professional side to me um, out of concern because right. he did recognize that I was kind of a victim of circumstance there. Yeah, of course, yeah. And, um, but as I was saying, Stuart was debilitating more and more yeah. and it was really necessary for him to be where someone was present all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a medical professional, doctor or nurse yeah, was always- Yeah, we were lucky in that sense. Yeah, certainly. 
So um, he got sick one more time, and that was in the summer in July, yes. and this is 1988. And he was admitted to the hospital, and it was Cabrini Medical Center, ah, okay. which was in Lower Manhattan. And that was the hospital that his AIDS doctor, because he had a doctor that was specifically um, mm-hmm. involved with HIV research. Okay. And he, he was admitted to that hospital and got worse and worse. And I remember, I don't remember who called me to tell me that he had, there's a term in medical speak, code blue. Mm. And I think that's coronary arrest. Uh, okay. Have to either be resuscitated or not. And sure. they resuscitated Stuart. Mm-hmm. He was put on life support at that point with um, a Oof. breathing tube. Mm. And, um, and I remember at that point in time, we just sort of knew the end was coming. Yeah. Um, and your grandmother would go every single day, every single day to visit Stuart. And I would meet her during the day hmm. um, for a couple of hours or in the evening. And um, I remember on, because Stuart died August 1988. I remember- And Lindsay got married a couple days before he was supposed to go to the wedding. Yes. And he had that decline, right? Yes. In fact, I, I, I was with him that whole day that Lindsay got huh. married and he, he was most concerned because he had, had no one had what he was like, he wasn't able to shower and his hair, he's like <laughs> a mess. And so I remember washing his hair for him Aww. because that was really important to him. So I don't remember when he had the coronary arrest, but we knew that the end was coming. Mm-hmm. And I would just remember how distraught your grandmother was. God, yeah. Um, and how, you know, he was on life support and how your grandmother kept saying like, I don't care, I don't care, he can stay this way. Um, I'll take care of him this way. She, yeah, I know that she offered to just bring him home and keep him in the attic like that. Just keep uh, him. I can't, I can't imagine. No, no it's, it's really okay. fine. Of course, it's, I can't imagine. It was just such a cruel disease. Yeah. I, I think that it's happened so quickly. You know, like you said, as soon as someone was diagnosed, they knew that they the were starts, on bar. Yeah. yeah, they had a, they had a limited amount of time left. Mm-hmm. And you don't even get good time because it 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 just ravages your body, and it's just such a it's such a difficult being a loved one of that person. I can't imagine what it was like you especially. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I think everybody was in their own head, and and in retrospect, my mom has said, "I wish I had had the wherewithal to know what what you were going through," because she was just. And at that point in time, you know, it's not even like. You could say you could say like, "Oh, hi, I'm Stuart's partner," and no, I could yeah. hear test results or ask for information about his current condition because I hmm. wasn't family, so yeah. I never really knew other than what was and your grandparents and your sister, your sisters, your mom <laughs> and your aunts were always. I was always aware, but it's not like I could ever ask or find out. Because, but that's as good as like, it well, got. Who's, kind ca- of, who's yeah, calling? Yeah, like, right. Well, this is his partner. Like, well, you're not family. We can't reveal any information to you. So it was, I, I swear, I remember 
being in the apartment alone when he was in the hospital and like lighting a candle and keeping that burning for him because I wasn't sure if he was gonna, would oh I be God. able to sleep with him or see him the next day. And oh, what a strange um, thing it was. But after he was in almost a coma and just on life support, we all knew it was just really, it was no way out. You were just down a dead end street with a brick wall in front of you. Nowhere you to turn. you don't come back. Nowhere. It doesn't. No, no. It was, it. it was really the end. I remember back then there were things called um, Sony Walkman. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember putting music on and putting it on Stuart's oh. head because he loved Blondie and he loved the talking heads. And, all good, all great bands, um, yeah. Yeah, so I remember putting music on, uh, putting earphones on him and, you know, whether he heard it or not, obviously, but I thought he would. Yeah. Um, just so that it was something that he related to and happy. Uh, I did that that night and we all were in that room. Hmm. We all stayed. He was in a private room. We all were in that room the night that he passed. Yeah, I said you, her, and my grandparents were there. Yes, yes, we were there. And we all took turns from your grandfather nodding off oh. and your grandmother occasionally. It was close to like four, three or four in the morning when he passed. And I just, sorry. It's okay. Take your time. Yeah. I remember walking out just in such disbelief because even though, like I was saying earlier, even though you know that I just could not believe it. And I remember your grandparents and your mom driving me uptown, dropping huh. me off at the apartment. They asked, did I want them to come upstairs with me? Because um, it was the first time I was gonna go into the apartment. Yeah. And I said, no, 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 no. And I knew that your grandmother, that everyone had more or less been up almost all night long. Yeah. And I just remember going upstairs mm. in such disbelief and yeah. breaking down. God, I can't imagine. Alone. And, but then I was like, oh my God, I have to start to tell people the next steps. When you're Catholic, you know, there's going to be a wake and there's going to be a funeral. And what am I going to say to everybody? And I hadn't really shared the truth with my family that Stuart was HIV. I'd said he had leukemia. You know, I had to come up with a quick one. No, it's easier. It's, yeah. Because at one point in time, my dad was also dying at the exact same time. And my dad died oh my God. Um, August, three months after school. Oh. <laughs> and my dad needed um, blood. And not every, he couldn't accept everyone's blood. And I had his type. So oh. I was asked to donate. My, I was expected to donate blood. And I had to come and say, I can't donate blood because, well, I'm why? Not. Why can't you? And, you know, it was just all around the, the lying and the What did you fighting. say? I said uh, there was a possibility I was 
I, I was exposed or, you know, I was in contact with sure. something. Okay. But, you know, and mm. but I, I couldn't donate blood because you, I wasn't even allowed to donate blood. Even if right. I really, oh, right. I couldn't say like, yeah, of course I would have given my father blood. He needed it. So, you know, coming home at that point in time, saying, well, what am I going to tell my parents? Oh, Stuart had died. And what am I going to tell my friends? And... You know, and th- my close friends, like Edward, was our friend. Right, Edward yeah, of course, because the family knew him as well, yeah. <laughs> yes. So I had a few close friends to say what had transpired. But other than that, I didn't know how to really share with anyone and to say, like, oh, well, and the living in fear, like, oh, my God, if my mother and my family go, because mm. they knew Stuart, he was at, in our home so many times, and they knew him, say, like, Oh my God, if my mother and my sister, my brothers go to the wake and they find out like he was HIV and, uh, you know, just again, you're stuck in a, yeah. fear and, you know, and not speak, sharing the full truth right. out of fear. So you go through all this trauma and you lose someone who's deeply important to you and then you don't even get the support system. You don't even get the the ability to tell, you know, your the people around you, your acquaintances, your uh, employers or whatever it is. Like you, you don't get right. the um, what would be expected in other situations absolutely. of that, that acknowledgement right. of your loss. Yes, yeah. absolutely. That is, that is true. So it's like, it's just insult to injury right. um, over and know, over really yeah. over and over now getting back to the reagan administration huh. yeah. when the reagan administration was starting to acknowledge the presence of aids it was because ronald reagan was a former hollywood actor um hmm. when you know because it was becoming more and more in the public eye about hiv liberace who was uh. Deemed as being sick because he was, you know, and he said he because he was on the watermelon diet. That's why he was losing weight. Okay. Google it. Google it. Watermelon Uh, diet. And also, uh, then Rock Hudson, who was a good friend of Ron and Nancy Reagan, and when he died, then there was starting to be some acknowledgement within the administration, um, you know, because it was hitting close to home. And Anthony Fauci was, at that point in time, very involved with AIDS research. And of course, there were gay activists, you know, ACT UP and GMHC. They always embrace his points of view. Oh, that there was some... Right, because there was that Larry Kramer disagreement with Fauci, I believe. But they remained friends? Yes, Yeah. very much so. So Anthony Fauci has been around a very, very <laughs> long time, and he is indeed a very smart slash brilliant doctor. Yeah. You know, the guy just keeps on ticking and going. <laughs> God bless him. But, and just uh, hurried up. And Giuliani these- too. We were looking at some of the ACT UP posters, and they had yeah. Was it? it was a it was an ACT UP poster, I believe. He only had a second. heart. Yeah, and he, he was the Tin Man. And it said if he if Giuliani only had a heart, he would. Uh, address AIDS, basically. I actually remember that. I actually remember that, now that you mentioned that. Yeah. So go figure that both of them have 
turned up again <laughs> to appear on some yeah. of the same sides that they were on before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I can't even get into the Giuliani conversation. Oh, for, God, like, I know. Um, I actually did have a question just following up. So you said that after the death of Brock Hudson and the Reagan administration started to um, acknowledge it more publicly, did you see a, a change in how um, society approached, you know, the general public approached uh, HIV AIDS? Yes and no. Because I think until it, it started becoming like everyone was more aware of it because it was in the news and mm -hmm. it was out there mm -hmm. um, and you would hear about celebrities. And so it was becoming a bit more mainstream. It was still something that was very taboo and fearful. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, it got to the point where if you, uh, I think everyone either knew of someone or had someone in their family that was gay or was sick. Um, mm -hmm. I shouldn't say everyone, but it just became a bit more out there. A kitchen and table a, issue, more of a kitchen yes, table issue. Yes, and yeah. there was greater awareness. And then hence, we'll fast forward into like the 1990s when mm -hmm. TV sitcoms like Will and Grace were on and you know it became more commonplace to have you know a gay person in your living room. That's through television <laughs> right. yeah. um, and they're like oh wow they're funny they can dance and decorate and Gays, they're, they're professional like <laughs> no <laughs> exactly um, like will was a lawyer and yeah. and look t today in 2020 you know young kids are not afraid to come out of the closet and be their true self mm -hmm. um, at a very early age and yeah. I think that there's, there's still a long way to go, yeah. but it, it has come such a long way in a short period of time. And there's still the stigma and the prejudice out there, just like to deny that there's systemic racism in this country mm -hmm. is bullshit, excuse me, French. <laughs> oh, um, no, yeah. Because there it is out there. Yeah. And there's still homophobia out there, and there's still um, prejudice and a lot of ignorance a lot yeah. of ignorance. Yeah. It is and that lack of exposure and familiarity, that, which is why I think things like bringing someone into your living room is such a powerful factor. Representation is so important yeah. in that situation. Because if you're from the Midwest and you've never met a gay person or a black person or you know a woman who's had an abortion, it's ah, oh, it's yeah. it's very, um, it's easy to fear monger if. There's no familiarity. Yeah, if your hunger turns to bubble, anger absolutely. pretty quickly. Something you mentioned about how quickly it's moved hmm. is something I, I wanted to ask you about because something that Mackenzie and I are stunned by yeah. is how much um, has happened in the last, you know, uh, 40 years. Even. Well, and really, particularly the last 20, absolutely. because Obergefell was 2015? Very recent. And that was the gay marriage case, obviously, yeah. the Supreme Court case. But even, uh, you know, you're talking about how stigmatized and uh, taboo it was in the 80s. And you're, like you said, they're now everyone knows, everyone has... At least in cities. Lives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But um, I, I did want to ask you about what has it been like hmm. to live through that of, uh, you know, 40 years yeah. ago, you were fearful to tell people about um in your life about it. And, and especially with... Uh, go out on a date. Yeah, yeah. Or like, you couldn't go out on a date. You couldn't... Um, meet people, you couldn't take them home, there was, uh, there was little or no public support for it. What has it been like for you watching that change over the last well, 40 years? 
I've been very fortunate, and Edward as well, in the fact that, you know, we live in New York City, and, you know, um, that has a lot to do, uh, you know, New York, any and everything goes, as you <laughs> ladies know, um, and it's a great city, and people care, but they really don't care, and... Yeah. Um, you know, it's... You're never going to be the weirdest one on the subway. So no, yeah. and it's really not a... I mean, we're fortunate in the sense that there's a big gay community there. We're accepted. Um, you can live in a, an apartment building or have a neighbor, and there's mm -hmm. really... It's all okay. Mm -hmm. um, but that mentality along the East Coast and the West Coast, mm -hmm. now, yes, of course, when you get into Southern states, there's still prejudice, as I was saying. But I think it's the people in that whole center of the country that, you know, lack of exposure, like you were saying, Mackenzie, and education and just yeah. not knowing the fear monger, yeah. like you were both saying. Yeah. Um, I feel bad for anyone who's gay growing up in yeah. the middle America because, you know, um, it's all okay. You know, no matter what, we all pay, we all bleed, <laughs> we pay taxes, we love our mothers, we're God fearing. Yeah. I mean, we're law-abiding citizens, we're human beings. And so yeah. it's like, it really ultimately should not matter who you Why sleep with care? No, and, yeah. and it makes us no better or no less than anyone else. Yeah. And to think that, again, the current administration has, is doing some things where being fearful of having rights taken away from us once mm -hmm. again, um, Whereas Transgender like, ban in the military. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And not being allowed to fly flags, you know, the, the, the rainbow flag. And it's just all these little things that fuel the conservative right that, mm -hmm. you know, we're outcasts or freaks or mentally ill. Again, mm -hmm. all of that coming up. So although we've advanced, we still have so much more, so many more milestones to right. mm -hmm. accomplish. Um, like marriage was just a, a piece of the puzzle. And I think you see things like um, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and, and Mike Pence, God being, Mike Pence yeah. was responsible for the biggest HIV outbreak since the 90s when he was governor of Indiana. And now he and, has the task force. And believing in conversion therapy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Still. So like you see them, I think a lot of it flies under the radar because uh, there are so many more blatant things happening every day, but they sneak these things in. And I don't think that it's an accident. It's hideous. Yeah. It's little by little. It's really, I mean, I'll draw you a comparison to like, too. let's go back to the 1950s when the black community you know, couldn't drink out of a, a same water fountain or couldn't even walk into a restaurant. Well, they're working on that too. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, wait a minute, T time moves forward and we should be advancing and- Roe is on the table again, that it's been 50 years since Roe v. Wade and still and yeah, we're absolutely. back on the chopping block. I, I don't know. So, and it is ridiculous. And huh? I'd say the same about HIV legislation. Absolutely. That a lot yeah. of it is still um, around where it was in the 80s there are still a lot of laws on the books in places like Arizona even that allow you to forcefully quarantine somebody who tests HIV positive. Essentially no questions asked if a public health official commands it. And that is, it's not an effective disease containment strategy. Sex education would be. Yeah. Um, access to care, access, access to, to information, yeah. Yeah. protection yeah. and testing, healthcare, like it's, it, 
those are the things that would actually help if we're concerned about it. But the laws, I think, came about in that fear-mongering place, and that's where they've stayed, yeah. despite medical progression. But now, so now, far from a through, you know, perseverance, yeah, education, um, research, yeah. Um, and the fact that it really doesn't affect just people huh. that are gay or hemophiliacs, it can affect any and everyone. And um, yeah, I mean, it's almost like saying you have diabetes. Well, with proper care and medication, yeah. you can live a life. That, that's incredible. That's really, really- It's pretty fast mm -hmm. turnover on that front, if you mm -hmm. think about it in that perspective. So that's good. But it required attention and resources, yes. and it required yeah. research that- So that can be our plug for the end of the and, episode. Right, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot own. of lives. A yes. lot yes. of lives. Yes. We'd done this a decade earlier, which seems like it probably was feasible. Yeah. And actually, uh, that was something that, you know, I, I know we're kind of wrapping up, but something that really struck me is that, you know, you, you look at numbers like, I believe, again, by 1984, uh, about 5,000 people had, had passed. And that number, when you consider that it was uh, largely uh, concentrated. concentrated groups in the gay community in like San Francisco and New York and a couple other big cities, um, small communities of people who are really tight knit, yeah. and just the law, the the level of loss of mm -hmm. life of your friends. And I, I was talking to Mackenzie about this today, but I can't imagine, you know, in our community, because um, there's a quote by, from Larry Kramer, but I believe 1983, and he was talking to a reporter, and he oh, said, "Who was it? It was the Jane Polly. Jane Polly, yes." And, and he said, "How would you feel if you'd lost twenty of your friends this year?" And she said something like, "I, I would be upset." And he goes, "Yeah, we're very angry." But it's this idea <laughs> yeah. of yeah. just the, the volume gay community of was so tightly knit, especially because for a lot of people, they didn't tell their families, so that it was a chosen family losing just so many people you love. I am, I just can't and imagine talented that. folks too, because these are the ones yeah. who got out and did their thing. Got and, into the cities and were really bright, uh, uh, beautiful so the playwrights souls. And yeah, the and it's just from the dancers and so, writers, yeah. I, just, I, really, I mean, I would like to hear about, if you'd like to say anything, but it's more of an acknowledgement, I guess, just yeah. of, of how big of a loss that was for people at that time. Absolutely, I mean, look, there. it, it is a very, close-knit, tight community, and a lot of people, star, uh, artists, and extremely musicians, and talent, all these young lives lost that, you know, for for really, I don't want to say no reason, that we're, we're just lost, and, yeah. and very sad. Yeah. I stayed in the apartment that I was uh -huh. in with Stuart until 2008. So because oh it was a rent-controlled apartment. Oh, right, yeah. right. And, and Edward and I became involved in 1990. Okay, so a while. <laughs> yeah, and two years ago, we got married. Edward oh, and I got married. Oh, that. Yes. So exciting. And we said, we better do it before Trump takes that Honestly, right away from us. oh, yeah, I understand that. But, so we, that, that's where we are, but anyway. Well, Thank you so, so much. Yeah, we so um, appreciate talking to you. That this, was and you and I will lightning. continue our conversation, I'm sure, on many. All right. We, uh, we're just so grateful to be able to talk to John. He's a, such a lovely soul, and his story really shed light on the very human part of this issue. I think that it's so easy to talk about the AIDS crisis in abstract. In uh, any epidemic, I Absolutely, think. especially, in, especially in the past, mm -hmm. and um, we were so grateful to be able to hear it from him directly. And just, uh, just his generosity in sharing his time and his story 
and his heart with us. And um, vulnerability. You absolutely. and I both are, are working on our vulnerability, and I, I love that. It's in not that, easy to talk about something like this, and yeah. we, we were so um, thankful that he was willing to. In that spirit, I would reiterate everything. So grateful to have talked to him, and I'm really grateful to Brooke that she was willing to indulge oh, a personal familial experience. It's such an important topic, and obviously, yeah, Stuart Joy was um, hmm. a, a wonderful person who touched a lot of lives, and I think that the best way we can honor the people who were lost and the families like Mackenzie's who lost people to the AIDS crisis is to talk about their stories. And I stay smart in future. And you know what, as, as the pin that Stuart was buried in said, consider preserve culture, kill a mime. He, He would want you to. Yeah. So, uh, we also want to reiterate that RBG died. Holy fuck. Um, we're not, not irrelevant yeah. to this topic either. We're Absolutely. reeling from this news. Our next episode, we're gonna we're gonna talk about the effects of that and how that's gonna play out in the election. We're gonna nap for a decade and then we're gonna record that. We didn't want to not acknowledge it, but yeah. we just it happened today. We like haven't had hours time ago. to even figure out what's going on. So stop calling me the Prince of Darkness. That's how rumors get. You're calling yourself the Star of Light. No, treat yourself with kindness. Treat yourself safe. Get STD tested. Put your head right between now. your legs and kiss your butt goodbye. And in the interim, you can find me on Instablam crying these days at MKZJoyBrennan and on Twitter also crying at Get Me to a Nunnery. But the two is, can you believe it, the number two. Brooke? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Brooke Angeline. You can find me on Twitter at BKE Rogers. Um, Alright, stay safe, stay sane. Bye! Bye. Bye. Bye.